Aloha Kako. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. In our few months together, we've seen a lot in Honolulu's Chinatown. We followed wound care on the street. We saw despair among shop owners and residents in, the mo- <laughs> in this incredibly picturesque neighborhood. This week, the Chinatown Watch website logged nudity, public defecation, and a robbery at knife point. Look, on the other hand, there are signs of hope, and they're coming from the art community. The city of Honolulu has opened the way for an art center above the new Chinatown Satellite City Hall, and owners with proven track records are stepping into Peggy Hopper's former gallery. Andy Friedlander is principal broker at Collier's International, which handled the Hopper sale. I asked Andy if he thinks lower rents are coming to Chinatown. Let me share with you why rents are what they are in Chinatown to start with. If you think about Chinatown, it's not like a shopping center. Shopping centers open at 9 or 10 in the morning, and they go to 8, 9, 10, or 11 at night. And most retails does that. Chinatown, when the offices are full, there's a 45-minute there's a lunch hour, and there might be Pao Hano. That's it. It's not like regular shopping. If the offices are closed on Saturday and Sunday, there's virtually no business during the day. It's a very different environment that retailers have to exist in. And they can't pay the rent that other places charge because they're not open for the same amount of hours. They don't have the same amount of traffic. So you have to understand that to figure out what people can pay. With that said, yes, there's going to be a lot of tenants that go out of business and will not be back. So will rents go down? Yes. Rents will go down because a landlord has to have some rent coming in to pay its mortgage, to pay common area maintenance charges, etc. It's going to be tough for a couple of years, I believe. From what you know, would a property owner do everything they could to help who's already in there stay there for their own self-interest? Yes, some do and some don't. Collier's represents 8, 10, 12 million square feet of space in property management. We have some landlords that will bend backwards and inside and upside down to help their tenants stay there because they don't want to have a vacancy. They'd rather collect CAM, common area maintenance, than zero. So a lot of landlords are of that ilk. There are some landlords who say, no, you're, you're, in, you're in there. I have a mortgage to pay. Pay me my rent. So it's, it's totally different, Noe. Each landlord's got their own thought process. But some say, oh, yes, I'll give you free rent for the next six months. But then I want that double rent for the next year. I want that all paid back. And these tenants are not going to be able to pay it back because things are going to continue to be slow for the foreseeable future. What's the way out on this, Andy? Time. But who's paying rent meanwhile? Therein lies the problem. It's not going to be easy. Most tenants are going to have to go away. And so there might be bankruptcies. Some landlords will say, stay in there. Just pay me something and we'll work it out later. And those, in my opinion, those are the smart landlords. Because to have a vacancy, when are you going to fill it? And if you have a vacancy, you're going to have to pay tenant improvement allowances, commissions, and you're going to be vacant for, what, a year? So you're better off keeping the tenant you have. Yeah, this is, this is really tough stuff. And, and I was reading that retail and hotels have been the property's hardest hit. Is that what you've seen? Retail, hotels. And the question is, what's going to happen with office space? Because many people don't want to be in high-rise offices. They don't want to be riding the elevators. But some are okay with it. And then many people are learning that you can work from home effectively. I was just reading that Morgan Stanley expects work at home to triple by 2024. I believe that, yes. And that's what's going on with the housing boom all over the country. People are moving out of the major cities and buying homes all across the country where they have more space to live and a better lifestyle. Some are already coming here. The very wealthy are going to Kauai and the Big Island in the resort homes, but many people are coming to Kahala from California that can afford to work from anywhere. What's going to happen to downtown, our office spaces? Only time will tell. 
there's certain companies that are saying, no, we're going we're gonna to give more space to our people in the office and we'll rotate. So some people will be on two days a week and they'll alternate Wednesdays and the other people will be on two days a week and alternate Wednesdays. So there's a lot of that conversation that's taking place, but there's nothing that's been determined yet. What was the occupancy in office space downtown Honolulu before COVID? It was actually growing nicely, like 87 or 88%. Mm. What do you think we're at now? It has not changed a lot right now because people have leases. So you can't walk away from a lease if you're a reputable tenant in an office building. Um, but again, most, most of the offices, their people are working from home. Uh, I'm aware of several companies that are looking to sublease a lot of their space just because they're finding that people can work from home effectively and they can cut down that overhead of that rent. This is a huge transition that's starting here, Andy. All over the world, including here, yes. And I'm going to let you at some point in time talk to Miley Meyer about that. She's terrific. She and uh, her partner are opening uh, her gallery down there. And I think that's going to be an awesome opportunity. And Miley's energy is so terrific that she will help bring back this part of Chinatown. If you just thought about it, what kinds of businesses do you think would be successful in Chinatown? Honolulu's Chinatown. Chinatown to me is so charming. It's got a special vibe to it. People come from all over and they love Chinatown. They come from all over the world and they visit Chinatown and they love it. So I'd like to see more of what's there now. I don't see any new businesses coming in that can flourish other than the type that's there now. You know, the, the deeper end of Chinatown's got all the markets, and I think that's terrific. And then there's restaurants and, and different stores, and you'll find stores there that are not anywhere else on the island. I want to see that flourish. Those are the very stores we fear for. The yes. herbalist shops, yes. the sweet shop, the yes. char siu shop. Oh, that crack seed <laughs> shop on Bethel Street. Right. Yes, a lot of restaurants are going to close, and I think many of those shops will also. What do you think the timeline is on that? For everyone, it's going to be different. But I don't see how these guys can continue. There's virtually no income. It's a disaster at the moment, but I'm absolutely confident it will come back. Why? Because I've seen it happen many times. The merchants get together and their optimism and their openness. I'm not sure when it'll happen, but it always does. I have total confidence in that. Andy Friedlander is principal broker at Collier's International, which handled the Hopper Gallery sale. It's sold to two co-creators of the new Arts and Letters building. Weifang had a book and coffee shop and was a principal in the Kakaako Agora, a radically repurposed warehouse offering installations, pachakucha in their early days, just adventuresome uses of space there on Cook Street. Miley Meyer had Two Eyes Gallery and SPF projects. Since then, Wei has stayed in development, moving to affordable and in, into the policy arena. Miley has pressed on with Namea, Native Books, that's her baby. And Miley says that this partnership now is a rare one. Peggy manifested us, that's what I think, because she's had the building for so long and she's really kept it in a place where it welcomed in creative energy, her own and community. So I just am grateful. Way and I have worked together on Oahe Street in Kaka'ako. How long ago has it been now, Way? 2015, 2014 maybe? Way had R&D, which was a fantastic art bookstore, coffee shop. Oh, yeah. And then we had two eye right next door and we punched a hole between the two buildings and it was a building that was going to be torn down when salt was built. It was just a great experiment in being part of a growing community. You two created essential hubs in Kaka'ako where uniquely Hawaii creatives had a scene. Uh, it took root. Do you think there'll be some cheaper rents creating uh, opportunities ahead? Anecdotally, I mean, you've probably heard, too, that there's certainly lots of small businesses that are closing or considering closing for now, but there's others that are sort of waiting for the fire sale to happen when they can jump in because they have 
you know, been keeping or amassing some resources or have an idea that they're ready to execute on and where they're just waiting for real estate prices to come down a little bit. But that market timing is very hard to do. You know, it's very hard to do. As you know, we have a lot of commercial real estate in this town that's owned by REITs or other national corporations that have investors from all over the world. And they may or may not have the ability or the will to want to negotiate. I think a lot of our friends who have small businesses have experienced really varying degrees of that during the pandemic as they're trying to see if they can renegotiate or get deferrals or work out a deal. So it's just really hard to say if the fire sale is going to happen, if there are going to be good deals out there. And Alpuni space, is that continuing as is? It is. It's going to continue to be a collaboration more purposefully with Trade Airs and Tropic Editions. So Mm. it's a good thing to have a space there that is working as a kind of creative muscle down in Kaka'ako. It's fluid, it's emerging artists, it's just a really good place to gather. And it's kind of a echo of what was happening when Wei and I were both down on Oahe. It's going to stay put until they kick everybody out from that block and start redeveloping it probably in three to five years. And Namea and Akipuka there, how are they doing now? They're in Ward Center, right? We are, like everyone else, closed for walk-in retail, but do have a strong online presence. Kipuka is very heavily into Hala, and Hala will also migrate down to our arts and letters because there's a lot of downtime. And so working with our hands and just doing things there as part of some of the programming, you know, we hope to combine. There's a lot in flux, as everyone knows right now, but we're carrying on for our post-COVID vision of vibrancy, connectivity, hotspot for culture, commerce, and politics is how Kavaivai Mahina is, is so eloquent and she really considers Nu'uanuma, the whole area of Nu'uanu as a catalytic center for creativity, innovation, and collaboration, you know? Knowing what you did with programming at um, the Kaka'ako Agora, it's pretty exciting to have you involved mm-hmm. in another space, Way. Thank you. Yeah, it is going to be exciting to sort of flex that part of my brain again. <laughs> I'm thrilled to kind of be part of a, a slight reinvigoration of Nu'uanu Avenue because there's some wonderful people that are coming into the neighborhood. When the pandemic's over, it's going to feel like there's some action on the street, which is exciting for all of us. Art strategists Miley Meyer and Wei Fang are co-creators of the new Arts and Letters building at 1164 Nu'uanu. Miley referred to more excitement coming to Chinatown. Sandy Pohl of Lewis Pohl Gallery is at the center of that. Lewis Pohl is the only surviving gallery from Chinatown's heyday in the early 2000s. Now, Sandy Pohl says the COVID pandemic is managing to open possibilities amidst the decimation. It's a previous lockdown, the three months that we had, that really, it eats at you. It, it was grim. Yeah, it was horrible. What happened? How did this whole downtown art center thing get to happen? We've been working on it for a long, long time. It never has been able to happen for a long, long time. Yeah, but you know what? So we got this $75,000 from the state. If we don't spend it, we have to give it back to them. So uh, we went to the city and said, hey, last chance. So they worked a deal with us. What was the deadline of returning the money to the state? At that point, it was June 30th. Of this year? (laughs) Yeah. So what would happen is we got an extension to spend the money because we have this space that we're going to create and have classes and do all the things that everybody ever wanted for the last 20 years. This actually is kind of like a dream that when Lewis had this dream, Bob Mitkiff did, Andy Friedlander did, because he started, he gave the opportunity <laughs> Arts at March, right? So 20 years, this is a 20 year thing in the making. He's dumping on somebody else's dream and making it happen. Why do you laugh? I don't know, it seems so unlikely, nine months ago. Yeah, I remember that. And I was, December 31st, I was like, I'm give, we're giving this up, we're not doing this. There is no way 
I mean, isn't that amazing? That space was vacant for four years. So with COVID and the economy the way it was, it will probably be vacant for another four years, if not 10, because nobody's going to start opening businesses anytime soon. So we're taking a chance. The city's giving us this chance, this opportunity. It's like when I was going to grad school, they said, never let a crisis go to waste. This is taking an opportunity that out of disaster. Because really, Chinatown is really a disaster right now. There are more, every week I go to work and I find there's one or two more stores going to close. It's really sad. Nobody knows what to do. But what an opportunity if the city sponsored open streets and they did a discover art thing where we had six different venues to, for people to look at. Maybe even have some activity on the street that's art related, I don't know. So I thought we could do it on second Saturdays in the afternoon. But you know, we make it up as we go. Uh -huh. One thing about, <laughs> we're so clever, we're so ingenious. We can make things happen on a dime if we so chose. I talked to Hawaii Theater and Arts and Marks, and they liked the idea of doing Second Saturday. Yeah, so it might happen. Hawaii Theater has nothing to lose, you know what I mean? None of us have anything to lose. That's the thing about it. It's about generating an idea, a fun idea that people can get behind and say, oh, I got to check this out. That's how First Friday started. First Friday started with five galleries having their open house on First Friday. Doing something is better than doing nothing because when you do nothing, I can stay in bed all day on Sunday because it's like, it's too hard to get up. It's too hard to even think about what to do next. But this gives me something I can get excited about. And when we talk about it to other people, people get excited about the idea of doing something small, like going in to volunteer and paint walls because that's the kind of labor we're using. We're using volunteers to make this happen. Everybody can get involved. It's kind of really cool. <laughs> Unsinkable arts advocate, Sandy Poole. Check the Downtown Arts Center website for events and if you'd like to get involved. They're planning to open with a statewide exhibition by Hawaii Craftsmen in late October. That organization is one of the most experienced and cohesive in the state. Hawaii Craftsmen shows adventuresome works of the highest quality. Entries are welcome through October 5th. And as far as the Arts and Letters Building, programming there could begin in the fall. If you look right across the street, the Arts at Marks hopes to open with a new show later this month. Right around the corner, Hawaii Theater has recently partnered with the Hawaii Symphony. The HSO returns to HBR2 Tuesday, September 8th, 8 p.m. with the Halekulani Masterworks Series. Concertmaster Iggy Jang and Executive Director David Moss will chat live from the Hawaii Theater stage beforehand. That's next Tuesday. And in other Chinatown news, the Mighty Union Hui is proceeding with building permit approvals and historic preservation nomination filing for the WOFAT renewal. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu with a message to stay safe and to protect one another and oneself, committed to the safety of ohana and community. Kahalaresort.com Share a little aloha this September. With Foodland's annual matching gift program, your donation is matched by Foodland and the Western Union Foundation. When you're at the register of a Foodland, Sack and Save, or Foodland Farm store anytime this September, remember Hawaii Public Radio and give aloha.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Chaminade University and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Dr. Victoria Fan is a health economist, faculty at UH Manoa, and chair of the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Workgroup, HIPAM. She's explained why Hawaii-specific data is crucial to planning for economic recovery. But she says it's not just data, it's data and speed. COVID is really a game about timeliness and rapid response because Every day that passes uh, when someone is not aware that they are infectious uh, is another day when more people are you know, infected. Um, it's a disease that spreads exponentially. So timeliness really matters in, in COVID. And so some of the critical measures are things related to um, how quickly the labs turn around their test results. That's called the lab test turnaround time. Um, that's a measure we've been asking for for quite some time, and, and we're excited that I think as of last week, uh, the Department of Health has released that information on their website um, to give some sense about how long it takes uh, for someone to get their test results. Um, another critical measure that we're very interested in is the contact tracing lag. So from the time the test result is um, delivered, uh, till the time that the contact is actually traced, right? So as soon as someone you know, knows that they're tested positive, we ideally have a, a very effective public health response system that can you know, reach out to and communicate with that individual about the need to isolate safely, tracing their potential contacts where they've been, who they've met, and try to inform those individuals as well. Moving forward, I get a sense that Department of Health is very keen to make some of these measures more available. Um, there are, I think, serious challenges to the structure of the data. We're talking really potentially messy data that needs to be cleaned, and it will take a lot of time and effort and manpower to do that. Um, but you know, we shouldn't let um, what is a daunting task to clean up data uh, hinder us. And I think if we put all hands on deck to try to do it, uh, we can get a better sense of exactly how well um, our contact tracing efforts are. Obviously, we, we also have to strengthen the actual contact tracing efforts itself, which I think there are some plans to try to do that. So this, uh, for, for myself, those are the two biggest pieces. I think also for me, a third piece is on the personal protective equipment, the PPE supplies. I think more recently, there was an announcement, I think, by the House to expand the distribution of um, PPE to a broader community outside of the health professionals. What do you think we can learn from the current mass testing that the city's doing? It sounds like through this vendor, the results are being communicated back to the patient. It's not as clear to me to what extent are those results being communicated back to the Department of Health. I think that is an important piece because obviously that information needs to be communicated to the Department of Health if they actually are expected to do the contact tracing for these new tests conducted by the city and county or whether city and county is going to be doing the contact tracing. You know what else was interesting from a graph on your site is the whole idea of lagging and leading indicators. When we talk about leading indicators, we're talking about indicators that are more upstream, which can alter you know, how... Um, how the disease is spreading. So for example, things like, are people adequately socially distancing? Um, are people wearing masks? Um, are people washing their hands for 20 seconds? You know, so like in, in Taiwan, for example, they actually monitor water volume usage um, in the municipalities because they know that that's an indicator of whether people are actually washing their hands more. I think there is a need to have greater emphasis on some of these leading indicators uh, because that that gives us the power, so to speak, of what we as individuals can do. You know, COVID is in our hands, so we're all responsible. It sounds totally boring to just say, wash your hands, wear a mask, keep a distance, but really, we do need to do those things. We really need to wash our hands for 20 seconds with soap, you know? We really need to wear a mask, not like hanging from here or on our, on our elbow. And we really need to keep a distance. 
Absolutely. Health economist Victoria Fan chairs the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Workgroup. Their current COVID-19 forecast shows upward trending through September 9th based on available indicators like how much mask wearing is going on, social distancing, and so forth. How will the current surge testing vendor transmit results to DOH? And how will contact tracing be handled? We haven't received answers from the city yet on that. Meanwhile, free COVID testing continues at more than a dozen sites across Hawaii, most of them on Oahu, one on Kauai, one on the Big Island through September 14th. Sites will be rotating over the next two weeks. Walk-up only testing at Aloha Stadium will happen today through Monday. If you want to pre-register, we'll post a link with this story. Aloha Friday. It's the Aloha Friday Conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Albie Miles researches and teaches agroecology and diversified community food systems at UH West Oahu. Miles claims that agricultural production and local food systems can be the basis of an economy that puts Hawaii's people first. However, this current pandemic is teaching us an important, almost counterintuitive lesson. There were not shortages of food coming into Hawaii. That was not the challenge. The challenge was that so many people lost their jobs simultaneously that they did not have the income or the purchasing power to afford the foods that were in the marketplace. At the onset of the COVID-19 crisis, there was a short-term run on supplies because so many people were basically hoarding food. But then the real crisis in terms of food insecurity came about as a result of people's loss of purchasing power. And so I would advise our state leadership to begin the process of articulating a food system resilience and equity strategy for the state of Hawaii so that we have a plan in place that we can follow in times of acute need. I guess the need would be that suddenly our infrastructure isn't working and supplies can't really come in to save us. So the way that this is being articulated in the academic literature is they're using terms such as a vulnerability assessment to look at what were the points of vulnerability in the system due to the COVID-19 shock? What were the impacts of this crisis, which was primarily economic, people losing their jobs and losing their purchasing power, and that driving the amount of need for emergency food? That's a very different kind of crisis than some kind of external shock of a tsunami or a hurricane, and we almost had a hurricane and COVID-19 overlapping, and I think that that would have been disastrous for Hawaii. Albie, where, where would we look for these vulnerabilities? Well, there's a range of vulnerabilities. A key one is simply the purchasing power of low-income community members. We already know that we have a fairly high rate of food insecurity in the state. We have an uh, adjusted poverty level of about 14%. If there's any crisis at all, whether it's an economic crisis, uh, ultimately, which COVID-19 precipitated, or it's an external shock like a tsunami or a hurricane, it's the people who are already most vulnerable economically who will be put in a more compromised position. What are some remedies there? Some of these things are going to be through the process of economic recovery, but I believe that we need to increase the minimum wage in the state of Hawaii to an actual living wage. You prefaced it properly, but you know, people lose hope when you start it, raise the minimum wage. <laughs> but we, we needed to have made these investments prior to this crisis. And now we're in a crisis. And of course, all these things seem unattractive. But at some point, we're going to have to pay the true cost of living more equitably and sustainably. Right? We're facing the negative consequences right now of having an unsustainable economy. If we pay people less than a living wage, we should expect food insecurity and poverty. 
You're talking about a minimum wage that would probably range from 14 to $27 an hour various parts That's of our right. state. So, yeah, there was a study uh, out of MIT. They do this living wage calculation and they say for, you know, uh, like a, a single person in Honolulu, it would need to be $16 an hour approximately. Again, if we don't pay people a living wage, then they're going to have a difficult time living in our community. So that, that gap needs to be filled one way or another. So we're hitting multiple targets simultaneously. People have increased access to quality food. We're circulating those dollars in the local economy, supporting our local agriculturalists. And if people have access to higher quality food, which most people want, that can also improve their health outcomes and address some of the chronic illness that is a result of people eating low quality foods. Community food systems expert Albie Miles is a member of EKI, a hui formed to develop a sustainable and socially just food system in Hawaii. Miles contends that coordinating our food systems falling between departments in government and oversight is needed. Hunter Hevelin has been acting as food resilience coordinator for the Hawaii Public Health Institute since the COVID-19 pandemic set in. A data-based food system planner, Hevelin studies the history of food crises in Hawaii. This past spring, he set out to map hunger and food resources across the state. Initially, I was kind of pitching around like, okay, we'll do some modeling for who's vulnerable. We'll use unemployment. We'll use underlying sort of poverty baselines and SNAP use. There's a handful of organizations doing this. We can just get the data. And there are so many organizations out there providing a slew of different services food bag deliveries, it could be food boxes. There's Lanakila Pacific, for example, is looking to add sort of a CSA program onto their Meals on Wheels. So Meals on Wheels is another significant mechanism by which Kupuna access food. Outer Islands, for example, and on Oahu as well. Churches have also sort of stepped up to help be distribution points. So Aloha Harvest, for example, may be getting food rescue. And then in some cases, that food gets redistributed out to a partner organization, say a church you know, because they have probably a better finger on the pulse of their community to know who the most vulnerable groups are. And then, as you mentioned, there are these mass distributions, you know, an Aloha Stadium or something like that. On that sort of offshoot topic, the connections between local farmers and consumers, how important is that? And do you feel like we have structures in place to expand that going forward? The opportunity that's been recognized there for a century is still an opportunity. I can go online and order a whole bunch of local produce and meat and cheese and eggs, and it shows up at my door. And that's pretty spectacular. But I think it's also important to make sure that that type of service, particularly in these periods where leaving our homes is something we're not supposed to do, or there's a fair amount of risk embedded in it, right? So while connecting supply and demand is important, I think really trying to see how we can utilize some of these emergency food programming efforts to help build markets and build the industry. If every hospital, for example, bought only local produce, the add-on effects could be pretty good in terms of multipliers and so forth. For over a century, we've had public calls for decreasing food dependency, but it appears that just fiddling with these supply and demand levers aren't the only aspects we need to be paying attention to. And in particular, like what are these structural barriers land access, labor, and capital for the primary barriers to increasing productivity that Albie and I found in a statewide study of farmers we did in 2018. Food just appearing in our stores and at restaurants relies on a pretty complex web of interactions. How secure is it really? What this highlights in part is the shift in thinking over broadly the 20th century in terms of how we think about food security and who we think is responsible for it. The right to food was enshrined somewhat in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, mentioned around housing and other things. But the practice of it has largely shifted from being government role to being now in the private hands, right? So while we have this flurry of activity in terms of community feeding efforts, in most cases, it's not the city and county of Honolulu individual, you know, operating these, these programs, right? The nonprofit entities have really taken on this critical role. Um, for example, the Salvation Army has the memorandum of, um, of understanding with the state for emergency feeding in the case of disasters. And, really? And, Is this a good way? I mean, does this sound like it's going to get the job done? Well, I bring it up in part because often I think, particularly when people think about disasters, it's the government will come save us, right? And I don't think the government thinks about it that way. Having 
done disaster response work and part of my academic work is certainly also on that and now consulting work in this in this period an expression of the this onus right is that say fema and haima or rec recommend sort of a three-day food supply, a 14-day food and water supply for people to have on hand. Most people don't have the storage space for 14 days of food and water, let alone the economic freeboard to just keep that on hand. You, you painted this picture of these grassroots community organizations providing this food safety net thus far. This is kind of an emergency. It's like a rolling oh, crisis. Certainly. And yeah. I think everybody's expecting it to get worse. How sturdy are these grassroots organizations? Well, the organizations are, I mean, they have, they have risen to the task, right? And then many new, new ones have formed. Basically, we might have a good food infrastructure, do you think? <laughs> I think we're getting closer to it. And there's fortunately, I think this crisis in particular has highlighted the need for emergency food plans and the need for increased coordination. You described how hunger right now is not a lack of food problem. It's a lack of access problem, which is a lack of money problem. Yeah, this is a demand side crisis. And I will say that despite all of the years of study and work I've done in food systems that I've done in particular in sort of disaster fielding as it relates to food and agriculture, in all the scenarios I'd imagined, everyone going broke was not one of them. And that's, you know, essentially where we're at. Hunter Hevelin, food systems planner with the Hawaii Health Institute. Hevelin concludes, people in Hawaii are dependent on federal aid, state aid should it be dispersed, and charity in this crisis. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor, Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat Center. On the next Science Friday, while all eyes are on COVID-19, other global health issues like tuberculosis and AIDS are being shortchanged. It looks like the pandemic is going to set us back by about a decade or 15 years if countries don't shell out the resources that they need to keep things on track. A global health update on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Talking about the flow of food, Dr. Mei Okihiro is director of the Hawaii Initiative for Childhood Obesity Research. I found her through the Waianae Coast Comprehensive Health Center, which is doing groundbreaking work making healthy food available in their community. Now, people everywhere are starting to notice that sheltering in place is expanding our waistlines. According to Nutrisystem, the weight loss program, 76% of Americans had gained weight by early July, up to 16 pounds. You may have noticed the youngsters you're Zooming with maybe getting a little chubbier, right? So you expect a drill sergeant doctor to hammer you with shame and diets, right? But uh, I found it encouraging to talk with May. I hesitate to bring up the topic of obesity because everyone is so stressed right now. I am very sensitive about this topic in terms of what I see people going through. They're worried about their cramped households and their husbands unemployed and what are they going to do and their kids all being at home. You know, all of that. The last thing they want to be told is what they should not or should be eating. So it is something that we, we need to address and bring awareness to, but doing so in a very sensitive way because all this stress is driving our stress reactions. And one of them includes eating and having some nice taste in our mouth and in our tummy. Food could be one of the few pleasures left. Yes. Now, this pandemic though, do you think it is affecting what we eat? I definitely do. I mean, from what I hear from the families we see and our staff and, you know, my own family is that people are stressed. And when they're stressed, 
they tend to snack more and want to eat things that are pleasurable, so higher in sugar, higher in fat. And oftentimes, by the end of the day, a lot of people, including myself, don't necessarily want to just cook super healthy food and take the time to do that. So we might go to a ready-made option or just snack food or, you know, something like that. That's what families are reporting. Lots of snacking because everybody's indoors, especially in this lockdown right now. The kids are hanging out, watching TV, watching videos and playing video games and just snacking all the time. Oh, man. I mean, but these are such hard things to get a grip on right now. I'm just wondering. They are. Yeah, I don't fault anyone for the habits they have. And so how I try to frame it is, are there some simple things you can do that might stick? Like, do you think you could not buy so much juice and soda? Do you think we can cut back? Sugary beverages are the number one source of sugar in kids' diets and the number one source of extra sugar in the American diet. So do you think you can start cutting juice and soda down or out? And oftentimes families think that they can do that. You know, that's a very concrete thing. One thing. Just doing simple things in this very stressful time. For some people, it's because our day has shifted. And I think many of us have all have felt like the days and the nights and the weeks just right. They (laughs) run into each other. So our schedules are off. And for a lot of families, their meal schedule is off or the kids will eat dinner, even the adults, and the dinner will be late. And then they're staying up till one or two or three in the morning playing video games because there's no school or there's no work then they'll snack all the way up till the end. Oh, you know as well, May. Well, we're all experiencing it, right? And so maybe just one step that we can do to make it a little better on our bodies. So instead of going to sleep at two o'clock, can you think you guys can go to sleep at 12 and, you know, cut out that bowl of cereal right before bedtime? It's those little things. I don't want it to come across as this thing of scolding people like, yeah, you, you need to eat better and you need to, you know, exercise more. And it's just, we're asking for the moon if we tell people that, and it just is not what this is all about. The fact that people are becoming unhealthier and it's related to what they're eating is a reflection of the really marked stress that families are going through. How do we deal with that on an individual and on a larger level? May Okihiro is a pediatrician at the Waianae Coast Comprehensive Health Center and director of the Hawaii Initiative for Childhood Obesity. So you gained a few pounds. You're alive. We can work on this. for some food. Marinated chicken on the grill for Labor Day. How's that sound? You know, I first noticed Chef Grant Sato during a hands-on class at KCC Culinary. He was exacting, extremely picky. So when we started talking about his four-in-one marinade for this show, he started in about making shoyu from beans. Which brand is aged, how long, with or without wheat, how to use each type of shoyu. I'll post his notes on that. But for today's adventure, four money-saving ways to serve a 20-pound box of chicken. Okay, so in Asia, the leg and the thigh are favored because they have a higher fat content. They remain juicier and softer when cooked. Now, in America, everyone prefers the breast, although the breast, as you know, even if you go to a very high-level restaurant, it still can come out dry because, again, it has less fat. But in Asia, the dark meat is always a favorite because it ends up being so juicy and so soft and so delicious. Hmm. All right. Is that an expensive cut of meat? No, it's actually very inexpensive. And you can get it in Honolulu. For example, right now you can find a 20-pound frozen box of chicken legs and thighs for $17.99. That's incredible. That's 90 cents a pound. So they're frozen chicken hindquarters, actually. Correct. Correct. And if you... 
And for, you know, $18, if you buy one 20 pound box and you follow my show you family recipe, you could make five pounds of four different types of ethnic chicken from that box. Gosh, how many meals from that box you're saying? That's like 30 meals. Come on. <laughs> Remember now, are you going to eat a pound of chicken each? No. It also depends what you do with them because, you know, once you cook them, you can shred the meat. You could debone it and, you know, butterfly it. And, you know, there's so many things you could do with that 20 pounds of hindquarter. Okay. Well, we'll start us off on something. Okay. I like to marinate my chicken or simmer my chicken in different types of sauces. I like to make the basic shoyu marinade, which is a simple combination of shoyu, sugar, water, ginger, and garlic. And I like to make different styles of, of marinades or braising liquids from that base. Mm. For example, if I want to make a teriyaki chicken, I'd simply add chopped green onions to that base marinade and then marinate my chicken in there. And then I can either grill it or bake it and I have teriyaki chicken. I noticed okay. you had a char siu sauce. Yes, so if I take that same uh, shoyu base, I'm just gonna add some Chinese five spice, a little hoisin and red food coloring, and then I have a char siu base. You could marinate the chicken and make char siu chicken. You could marinate thinly sliced boneless pork shoulder and make char siu pork. You don't have to marinate a product in there. You could simply take this sauce, put it on the stove, heat it up, thicken it with a cornstarch slurry and brush on a char siu glaze onto an already roasted chicken and you'd have a char siu glazed or a finishing sauce. You're really big on this finishing sauce idea, right? Even yes. if you marinate it. Correct. The reason why I do a finishing sauce is mainly because I didn't properly marinate my chicken. I was really surprised by how long you marinate, you know, two days yes. normally for a thin slice of chicken. Well, usually I marinate them one day per every half inch of thickness. If I have the chicken leg and thigh quarter that's about an inch to an inch and a half thick, that'll go two to three days in the marinade. Okay, good. We've done two recipes out of that one base now. The next one is a very simple shoyu style of chicken, which takes my basic base and I just add the zest or the colored portion of an orange and all of the pulp squeezed into juice and I add that to the base marinade to make shoyu chicken. Really? <laughs> yeah, and basically you just simmer your, your chicken in that liquid. The uh, light acid from the orange will help to tenderize the chicken. The essential oils and the orange zest will also help to marry all the flavors together and your shoyu chicken will remain whole, glossy, shiny, and it will be the most wonderful shoyu chicken you've ever had. And so, you know, you would just cook maybe the whole 20 pounds like this and then maybe freeze some or something? Yes, I would divide it into four five-pound batches and I do four different types of marinades. And then I could either debone it and have the cooked flavored chicken in the freezer because, you know, you never know when you maybe you want some shredded char siu chicken for a salad topping or for burrito filling or to add to your fried rice. You know, there's so many things you can do with it once it's cooked and frozen. And once the chicken has been fully cooked and frozen, it does have a longer shelf life, you know, six months to a year in the freezer. One thing we have to worry about chicken again is making sure that it is cooked properly to an internal temperature of 165 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's basically to kill the salmonella that may be there. So that's the only worry with chicken. Chef Grant Sato teaches in the Culinary Institute at KCC. His marinade base has two ingredients plus ginger and garlic. We'll post the, the recipe with the story. And on the subject of where to get reasonably priced fresh food, earlier this hour we were talking about Chinatown, where Kekalike Mao is a seven-day open-air farmer's market. Fresh, locally sourced papaya, tomatoes, cucumbers, avocado, of course, tofu, eggs, fish, shellfish, and meats are there daily at the best prices on Oahu in Chinatown. Go in the morning. I've been many places Tasted all the
Well, geez, that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for joining us. We absolutely love to hear from you, you know. Call our talkback line and leave us your comments. That's 808-792-8217. Email us if you want, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, or you can post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. Tweet us at HI Conversation. That'd be great. Visit the Conversation page on the HPR website if you'd like to listen to any of the shows from our past. This program is produced by Lillian Zong, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Now this Monday, we'll have a special program from NPR and StoryCorps. Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation this Tuesday. Until then, let's take care of each other. Happy Aloha Friday.